must constantly look at things in a different way. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast was created by two physical therapists out of the desire to learn more about the different educational roles in physical therapy and healthcare and how healthcare education works by talking with educational leaders and people with different perspectives within physical therapy and across interdisciplinary lines on how education can be improved to disrupt the status quo of healthcare education. This is our journey and thanks for listening. Are you a third-year physical therapy student that excels on tests when you have study guides, checklists, and deadlines? With all of the information available about how to prepare for the NPTE, it's easy to get disorganized and not feel prepared going into the big day. NPTE Prep Success is an online course that provides PT students easy-to-use study guides and step-by-step guidance through the NPTE preparation. To learn more, visit kylericeprep.com. Thank you again all for your continued support, and now for the show. All right. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Poen, and today we have a very special guest from the West Coast, as today I am very thrilled to welcome a very special guest from George Fox University. Now, before we jump in, I would like to give a personal shout out and thanks to Dr. Stephanie Allen for recommending this awesome guest for today's interview today, as I am pleased to welcome Dr. Jeff Hope, who is the Director of Research and a Professor of Physical Therapy at George Fox University. Now, a little bit about Jeff is he's taught a variety of courses such as anatomy, biomechanics, imaging, orthopedics, movement analysis, evidence-based practice, um, along with doing a lot of research on lower extremity problems such as hip fractures, ACL injuries, childhood obesity, and foot problems, and currently is leading efforts to integrate the physical therapy into primary care. So this is including the adoption of the patient-reported outcome information system or or scales or promise. So Jeff, I really appreciate all that you've done from your, you know, your service and your career. I know you've done a lot and, you know, I really, really appreciate the time that you're spending with me today. Um, So before we kind of dive in, what's your story with how you got into academia? Because the more I've done this podcast, the more I've just heard so many different ways that people get involved. So I'd love to just kind of add one in there and kind of see how that story has kind of led you to where you are now, if that's okay. Well, it's great. No, thanks, Brendan, for having me on the podcast. And I appreciate, uh, you know, you giving a voice to a lot of important issues for everybody in the physical therapy community. So, so I'm excited to be here and talk about, um, you know, what we're doing at George Fox. Well, my, my, it's funny talking about yourself. Everybody has different comfort levels. And, you know, so f- for me, I, I, once you get me going, I'm good, right? But, but at the beginning, not so much. So, so anyway, uh, I love my story about how I got into PT. I was actually on a ship. Um, in the middle of the Indian Ocean, reading a career book, and then saw PT come up and thought it fit me. And then I became, I graduated, became very passionate about clinical practice, and went through a residency in Minnesota, um, and then decided to travel to Japan and do PT there. And while I was there, it kind of caused, you know, travel causes you to reassess or reflect on what you've been doing in your life. And so um, essentially, it kind of, it really motivated me to kind of think about things and you know, I was uh, um, editing a journal for the uh, Japanese uh, physical therapists there about practice in the U.S. And they kind of, um, it, 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 I liked sharing kind of with others and writing and researching things. And so then on a return to the U.S., I enrolled at the you know, University of Iowa to do, you know, advanced studies, basically. 
Awesome. And I know, Jeff, kind of the topic today, of course, was kind of getting that perspective of how to kind of challenge students to kind of address those societal needs. You know, if we kind of kind of look at this whole thing throughout the, if we look at an education standpoint, if we kind of start at the beginning here, um, that's, of course, focusing on the undergraduate education. So, you know, I, I'm kind of curious here because knowing that many students are so focused on the GPA as, you know, that's what I was when I was an undergraduate because that's what I knew one of the bigger uh, points that were going to count towards being accepted into a program. So I recognize that sometimes focusing on all the grades all the time and that made sometimes de-incentivize students for kind of going outside of the box in classes as they want to do whatever is needed to get the best grade to get in. Now, I'm just kind of curious here. Do you feel that many universities' undergraduate programs for pre-PT um, adequately, positively facilitate students to really kind of start to address these societal needs? And what, what's your thoughts on that? Well, I think, I think programs do the best they can in terms of what they can address. I think students are focused on different things before they're in graduate school, right? And so it's our job to pick students who have the capability to excel in science. And that really, the, the only way to really capture some of that is the GPA. And so you have to focus on that. But the other flip side of it is, are they mature enough to handle decisions that are really life-changing for patients that are going to entrust you with their care? So, so I think, you know, you have to look at both sides of it, but you can't train someone who doesn't have technical skill, and that's where the GPA comes in. And so, so I, I'd say that, do they adequately prepare? I think they, they, the motivations they're dealing with are much different than the ones we are, and so they're doing the best they can with, with that situation, I think. Yeah, no, that makes sense because I'm sure that there are so many other variables from the undergraduate side that need to be considered, and I, and I don't even have a clue about all the behind the scenes of that. But, you know, it, it's been interesting, you know, Jeff, seeing is how, you know, I, I'm really interested, especially seeing how George Fox integrates certain subjects such as strength training, pain science, lifestyle wellness factors, and all these other awesome things, and also meeting the CATME standards. Now, how, how are these subjects integrated into the curriculum? As I know that so many programs are normally packed with curriculum already and often don't have a lot of extra room. So how do you guys make that work? Well, so I would just say that what classes ultimately get included and taught are the, what separates programs. And, you know, all curriculum has a need to know now and, you know, kind of emphasis in order to be included. There, there really is no extra PT curriculum. It all has to be essential. So I think essentially what, what our program does, and I think many other, is they, they define a mission and then they stick to their mission to try to characterize and make their program unique. And so, you know, our mission is based on the health and wellness needs of the community. And so that word community way is big for us. And we mean, you know, both basically the community around us, national community and international community. And then our, our four pillars are excellence, passion, service, and innovation. And so my own role there is all of those, but in, in especially the innovation part and excellence, because that's kind of what research brings to a program, right? So, so that's how societal need gets just kind of emphasized. And then, you know, we have classes like professional duty and responsibility that, that we, you know, put in the curriculum along with, um, you know, our psychosocial class has a lot of societal needs kind of taught specifically. And then throughout the curriculum, you know, we have this kind of philosophy that uh, a PT is an asset in the community and then, and they should be thinking about like their impact throughout the community, not just with the patients that are in front of them. And so that's kind of our you know, attitude, which, which kind of pervades really all the classes, right? 
so, so I mean, that's, that's the, I think that answers most of your question, <laughs> but, but maybe if you want to explore some more, that's good too. But I think, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a big question basically. It is, it is. And you know, and Jeff, I want to go back to kind of what I had said in your introduction about the, the promise scales a little bit. Yeah. To kind of, would you mind kind of expanding on kind of what that is and kind of what we know about that specific scale and how that can potentially help contribute to this realm that we're yeah. talking about? Yeah. So, so, I mean, I think essentially a key problem to expanding care is to try to find people who need services that we might be able to deliver. So if you think about you know, a PT practicing at the top of their license, it would mean essentially instead of being a specialist, you would be delivering both MSK work, you would be good at cardiopulmonary and cardiovascular work, and you'd also do neuro. Well, that seems like a tall order, right? Um, essentially, if you're practicing at the top of your license, you're also helping with differential diagnosis and things like that. And so the other element of that is you're also bringing in both the biological component which is things like physical abilities and pain science, but then you'd also have, um, you know, mental and psychosocial skills too. So the biopsychosocial model is, you know, um, something that we want to implement but have a difficult time doing so because we don't have the tools. And so the promise scales were developed by NIH, um, you know, nationals over the last 10 to 15 years and our computer adaptive algorithm tests that take about one minute each to administer. So therefore, in the same time it takes to do like the Roland Morris or the Oswestry, you can get three to four domains or maybe five if you're willing in about the same amount of time it takes to complete those scales. So you can capture many more domains of their patient reported health status than you could before. So where, and so it allows us to capture things like self-efficacy, um, ability to participate in social roles and uh, family life and things like that that we couldn't know um, before, right? And so we can actually measure it and try to change them with interventions. And so essentially what that means is we can employ psychosocial in interventions and lifestyle interventions now and measure their outcome and then potentially demonstrate effectiveness across a, a health spectrum, right? And so that would really, you know, really change, you know, how we define PT practice if we were really to adopt this biopsychosocial model. And it would also lead to a, a significant impact on moving from just kind of MSK problems and physical health to kind of an integrated um, health impact, you know, across mental and social needs as well. It's really been uh, uh, invented by over three, I mean, hun literally hundreds of researchers from across the United States and some in Europe. And it's taken them, I mean, um, probably $50 million, maybe more of National Institute of Health money and research scientists. There's probably literally hundreds of papers, you know, uh, validating the different scales. There's over 300 different scales now, and they're all generic, which means they can be applied across the healthcare continuum. So if you have blowback pain or ankle pain or heart disease, they apply equally to all of those different diagnoses. So, so it's very, it, it's conceptually really different than the scales that we're used to using. And so um, the best thing to do for readers, if you want to go learn about Promise, is go to a place called healthmeasures.net. And that has everything promise related. And so, um, and then also I'm going to be on a podcast, another podcast called, is it called Level Up? I think that's right. And yep, there we're going to podcast. Only, yep. And we're only going to talk about promise on that one. But, but essentially promise is a significant um, 
tool for us, I think, in terms of um, allowing us to operationalize the implementation of the biopsychosocial model. And the reason that we've, you know, kind of embraced it at George Fox is because it really matches with our, you know, kind of effort in primary care, which is to try to um, address the needs of society, which are really broader than MSK. I mean, I think if you start looking at the key problems that a primary care provider faces, it's MSK is one of them. But really, you know, in our town in Oregon, the local hospital, if you, you know, track, which we happen to do a big data collection last year, if you track the major needs across all of their patient visits, 60% of their patient visits are taken into account by cardiovascular, endocrine, and MSK problems, right? And so if we were, and, and typically those patients, you know, have three to four comorbidities, a significant number of them have you know, physical functioning, that's one standard deviation below the U.S. norm, right? And that kind of falls right within our, you know, skill set is can we help people gain better physical ability across all diseases, not just, you know, low back pain or ankle sprains, right? And so, and it's essentially the improved health that would result from, you know, increased physical abilities would, you know, kind of change asthma you know, talking about changing, you know, diabetes, you know, kind of care and stopping progression, and also like might mitigate some heart disease problems, right? And so, so when we talk about physical therapy impact, as well as like MSK, that's kind of our kind of global focus or post neuro kind of injury and, in, in, you know, CVAs and things like that, we could expand that to general medicine, um, knowing that, you know, exercise and physical activity are really powerful, you know, kind of uh, treatments that can, you know, emulate or exceed the effects of drugs. So, you know, Jeff, I know you had kind of just mentioned and talked about this in relation to the CAPTI standards, of course, with balancing all these avenues into the curriculum, but is it similar or different to how you have to balance that to kind of cover content that's on the NPTE exam as well? Because I get that I understand the perspective that programs at the end of the day have to have the students pass the exam, so they have to be able to pass the material that's covered there. But how do we get the? How do you guys kind of get the best of both worlds if that's different from what you've kind of said already? Well, some of it's the same, but what's different, I think, is just to be really clear: we we absolutely teach to our mission, not to CAPTI standards. So you know, the idea is CAPTI standards are really minimum requirements, right? So we do believe, though, that students need basic PT skills and clinical reasoning supported by evidence, and that's really the core of the kind of generalist training and the training they need to, you know, treat in the biopsychosocial model. And so, and that's consistent with what the NPTE requires students to know. And so, so that's our basic kind of training. And then what we do is expand from there into like these, these higher level kind of ambitious programs related to implementing, you know, a full biopsychosocial approach to care, right? And so that's, I mean, I think that's fair. And I, you know, I think that the, the key for us is that the, really the, N, the NPTE is, ba- back, is based on evidence-based practice. And so, so not kind of extraneous kind of things. And I think the biopsychosocial model, as much as some elements of it have proven to be effective in terms of PT application, that's still an evolving concept. And so that's part of our mission is to implement, evaluate, test, 
and, and, you know, kind of promote that as a potential expansion of PT care in the United States. Right. Yeah, no, I think that that makes a lot of sense. And that explains that. And, you know, Jeff, I want to go back to one thing here, because I know that recently, Kathy has made some changes in December of 2018 to the rules of practice and procedure. And I know they've kind of done this to programs. And I know there were a few big parts of this that were kind of more big hitters regarding uh, pre-accreditation, substance change, and program fees. Um, and, you know, I'm just curious because we haven't really had anyone on yet to talk about those changes and how those maybe affect a program. Um, and I recognize this might be limited and that's completely fine. Um, but from your perspective, what are your thoughts on um, those, some of those changes regarding the pre-accreditation, the substantive change and the program fees from your guys' point of view? Well, right now we're going through, we started, we're only, program's only been in place for five years. So, you know, these are changes that have actually happened since we were initially accredited and then are going through again right now. So the, the pre, the pre accreditation, um, rule, I don't really have, um, a lot to say about it. And it seems to be, you know, kind of associated with hiring new faculty and, I think what we try to do at Fox, and I think our department chair who does a wonderful job with this, uh, Dr. Cuddeford, would know more than I do, but essentially reporting requirements are not really that cumbersome. So, you know, part of our attitude is, you know, we have a job to do and CAPTI has their job to do. And as, as long as they're not too cumbersome, then, then we're happy to help them. And so, so I'm not sure what motivated this rule, but I think that one I don't have a problem with. I think um, the idea that, um, you know, the, the substantive change has to do, you know, more that um, there used to be some flexibility in changing class size. And of course, that always is a hotbed issue at many different levels because of cost and, um, you know, whether you can actually accommodate the students and, and things like that. So I'll just say, I'll ignore most of the issues and, and address one that I think is really important to me and to the profession. It's like, I think class size is, is probably the number one most thing that should increase. And I know some other faculty who spoke on the podcast have said the same thing. And I think one of the things many faculty find that they have less time for research and expertise that they need to provide to the students. And that's because their faculty numbers are too small. So by increasing class size, you can add faculty, subspecialize, and then really, you know, kind of require faculty to become you know, not just local experts, but national and international experts in a specific topic area. And that, that benefits mostly the students and the communities around them. And so I think that's a much better strategy um, than, than trying to have like small class sizes and, um, and you know, fewer faculty basically. So, so I am a proponent of that. So, so I'm fine, whatever uh, Kathy wants to do with that, I'm fine with that. And then the, the program fees, I, I really just believe people should be compensated for the work that they do. So um, it, whether they're compensated justly, I think, is, is not something I, I know enough about. But, but they certainly do have to leave their families, come to a place, they review all the documents, and whatever is a fair uh, charge for that, they should get. Sure. And I mean, it makes sense too, given the amount of resources and stuff that I'm sure it takes to do some of that. I'm sure that plays a role in there somewhere. And like you, I'm not sure of that exact number and what that entails. But I mean, from that perspective, it certainly makes sense. And 
And, you know, I recognize that, you know, before we get to clinical education, that something to really help facilitate students to make changes is faculty leadership and role modeling. Um, and so are there specific things that the faculty at George Fox do as a group consistently to ensure that this aspect is being optimally addressed? So, so I would say that we're, um, we're out on the limb on this one because this, we believe in this, uh, I think a hundred percent. And I, I think our leader, or I call him, I'm going to call him right now just to give him due credit. Our Supreme leader, uh, Dr. Cuddyford has, uh, had an experience at Nike and, um, you know, really, uh, thinks about leadership and uh, thinking outside the box and how to take risk. And so he's been very, uh, you know, kind of innovative, I think, in trying to help us, you know, empower us to, to take chances with different things we're doing with students, to embolden students to, to do the right thing and, and stand up and not take jobs and advise them to take other kinds of work, um, to intervene at their clinical sites when things aren't going right, to support clinical sites when they are going right, um, things like that. And and also to kind of model like these new programs. And so the primary care, for example, is something once we started talking about it, we felt like we had to walk the walk. And so we've now kind of um, expanded that idea and placed a student at a, uh, a primary care site in, that started the primary care. So we all went there, um, three of the faculty went there, did an in-service for the entire staff, brought um, some of their faculty back down to George Fox University had them practice with us in primary care to demonstrate what the model looked like. We went through a business plan with a leader there and then have supported them intermittently throughout probably a year, two year period. And then we've kind of continued to grow that program locally at the hospital where we're at and then try to give resources for other uh, students to implement that same type of program. And so I think I think, you know, part of like one of the faculty, Dr. Kang, always says, you know, our most powerful weapon is science and we need to build an army. So essentially, we're trying to kind of connect the, the stay connected with the students, uh, listen to their needs and concerns, uh, give them ideas for problem solving both during their clinicals and after. And so I think that's that's that part of it, because, I mean, you really, you know, focused on the faculty role. But I'd say the other thing that's really important is like the skills that the students take to their clinicals. What's most effective in translating or changing their clinical sites is the effectiveness is the skills they take with them. And I'd say the, the most powerful one is, um, is that we've noticed anyway is the, is the cognitive uh, functional training that they're getting with Dr. Kang. Essentially, there's um, many clinical sites have noted, especially recently, that you know, students have like kind of led the charge on chronic pain cases using this approach, and the, some of the results are remarkable. And then the next thing we know is that, you know, we're being invited up or Dr. King's being invited up to, to give a, a lecture or something so that the other therapists can start to learn these new techniques. So I'd say, I'd say the proof is in the, the application then. And so, and so that's part, also part of what helps translate some of these uh, things to practice. Nice. And like you had kind of built that kind of up from the clinical education perspective, I know you, you would kind of, I know one thing to kind of talk about is uh, um, how faculty also make the point of visiting the students and performing and offering to do in-services for clinics to take the students. Is, is that accurate, Jeff? 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think what um, I mean, here's a good example. So the number of people who wanted to do promise in services this this exact spring is quite high. So, you know, they all were very excited about it. So we have like 20 iPads that all have promise available. So we came up with a loaner program so the students could come check them out and they could keep them at the sites for, you know, a couple weeks. And then also I produced uh, YouTube videos that they could use to kind of get people motivated about them or they could just copy the material. And then I gave them a, um, a PowerPoint presentation to get them started. And so, so that kind of, you know, facilitates the transfer. Um, and and this, that's a little bit unusual just because the promise itself is so new. And, and like, as I told you, if you get on healthmeasures.net and start looking at it, you will be overwhelmed. So if you have questions, you should contact me. And so the students felt the same way. So, I mean, I, I, I felt like they needed some resources so that they didn't just, you know, kind of say, this is too hard or I can't, no, I don't, too many different directions to go. You know, and so it's better, fewer choices make, you know, make for an easier pathway. Yeah. Well, yeah. And then that makes sense because I can only imagine given the complexity and how much is involved with something like that, that it can be rather overwhelming. And as when we feel like something's overwhelming, we tend to maybe not pursue it as much as we should have. So I think having that resource and giving that support like you guys do is very, very helpful. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious here, Jeff, because I've heard a ton about burnout from clinicians, for students, but I haven't really heard a lot of people talk about burnout from a faculty perspective. So, you know, have, what is your experience and your insight on burnout with, fac with faculty within PT programs? Well, I think, it's, I think it happens, and I, I know I've been burned out, quote, before. Um, but I guess I'll answer the question from some research I did, actually. So, so we were doing some... Um, you know, kind of uh, outcome-based data sets and, and thinking about a grant that we we're writing. And, and part of it, we thought, well, burnout's an interesting issue. It's, the, it's now the, the quadruple aim instead of the triple aim. And so the fourth part of the quadruple aim is to prevent burnout and, and maintain, you know, provider health, basically. And so, and so we kind of, I learned about burnout. So burnout is, by definition, a state of emotional, physical, and mental exhaustion. And what was, what's interesting, it's a little counterintuitive because people say, well, decrease workload and give more time and balance. And I think some of that is clearly true, right? But, but also what the reason that providers got into the job is because they're passionate about changing people's lives and being effective. And so another way to kind of alter burnout is to offer them something that reverses this idea of mental exhaustion and gives energy to them and gives them hope. And so... Um, something like the biopsychosocial model can energize and give hope or something like a new effort for lifestyle change or behavior change can energize and give hope. Right. And so, and so that is, it's, so it's well supported in kind of the burnout literature. So if you read it, um, you know, certainly you can't like work. Well, you can actually like, like some physicians actually work more to decrease burnout and at, at, at any level, like, you know, if they're already working 90 hours, they work 100, you know. Um, but, of course, it seems like a healthier choice would be kind of a well-balanced life and then some kind of passionate commitment to uh, an effective evidence-based approach to change outcomes. And that usually can energize uh, 
you know, providers. Now, do you find that kind of similarly with faculty? Because I realize how the teaching responsibilities, the research responsibilities, um, probably the committee meetings, the administration stuff. I mean, I'm sure there's way more that I totally just missed there. But do you find, but from your at least perspective that you know from, I know you're kind of looking at that research from that perspective. Um, what would you recommend to professors or other faculty members who are kind of feeling maybe a little overwhelmed with balancing teaching, research, and all those other avenues? Because I just don't think we've really gotten a true faculty perspective on uh, the burnout yeah. issue yet, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think, I think there's a couple things. It's like you, I think it's popular now to say know your why, you know, that's kind of, and I think that's, that's true here too. You know, you have to know what you're, what you personally, you know, burnout's about hope and energy, right? So what personally gives you hope and energy? Is it research? Is it changing clinical practice? Is it teaching? And so, you know, all of these three, these three pillars, is it service to the profession and the university? You know, those are the pillars of what makes academics, right? And so, so which is your kind of section or pillar, right? And, and if you know what gives you energy and hope, well, then it's easier to kind of focus in on those and, and then seek advice from, you know, faculty who are around you. I think it's no different than clinical care where, you know, when you have read the evidence and then you're having difficulty implementing something, the most common way that clinicians get advice, even more than evidence, unfortunately, is to ask the person next to them, right? And so I think it's no different here, you know, how to deal with different issues that come up in a complex environment like a university um, there's always disappointments and victories that are occurring and you need a strong counter sometimes to, you know, when you're not promoted or, you know, the research you think is fantastic is not recognized like you would like, or, you know, your service is discounted, right? Those things can be overcome with effective culture and, and strong support from colleagues. I mean, I think that's the same way we deal with patients who aren't, you know, recovering as we had hoped, right? Yeah, no, that's a really, really good point. And that's a good perspective because, I mean, again, you bring in such those unique situations and circumstances that affect faculty members, but there's also so much overlap between that and clinician and students, for example, like you kind of just mentioned there. And you know, Jeff, I'm curious because you being a professor for how long you've been a professor, I I'm just kind of curious because I always want to get the insight of someone. What do you think is the most difficult aspect of being professor? And how has that changed from when you first started? Like, like what did you initially find difficult and what do you find difficult now? Like, I I'd be curious to hear that. Well, I'll, I'll just say this. So the first day in my office, I still remember, right? So I showed up, you know, in the summer before the fall semester, I sat at my office and I said, what am I supposed to do? And they, and they, they looked at me and said, well, whatever you think is appropriate. And I thought to myself, wow, you know, so what do I, and then I thought to myself, so now what do I do? <laughs> you know, and I had last year's lecture notes, but of course I wasn't going to do those. Right. And so, and also I had the curricular plan. So I had some guidance because I could see the classes and the plan, but essentially the, the class is a blank slate. So the first, you know, the first part of being a professor is, is like, you know, trying to define what your expertise actually will be. Right. And you, you come in, of course, with some expertise. So that's, that's important, right? Cause if you don't have any, then that's very, very difficult. So people who think that they can, you know, start to be a professor mainly with clinical practice and, and really know, 
you know, kind of science expertise, that's a very difficult road, right? And so essentially the, the, the real role of a professor, just like we talked about adding faculty before, is to broaden the expertise and see the future really for, for students as they're coming up so that you're, you're teaching, you know, one, you know, five, 10, 15 years ahead of what practices at this moment, right? That's really your role. And so if you can't uh, see that, and most new professors have some vision of that, but it's not a wise, you know, vision, it's kind of a passionate vision, which is also good. But I think it kind of gets balanced more as you rehash and see things become real and then see things that you thought might become a significant thing pass by and, and not really impact, you know, how practice is being delivered. And so, so I think it's that, it's that transition from a kind of somebody who's very excited and passionate about what they're doing and has some new knowledge that they want to kind of, you know, turn into new practice and then, you know, kind of dealing with the realities of that and then sitting back, you know, and, and, and continuing to study and, and sit and just be at a, a much more broad, a spectrum of what their specialty is and what kind of impact it can have on practice. So, so I, I really do believe that all good teaching starts with good knowledge. And so if you don't have that, then you can't be a good teacher. Right. And, you know, I want to kind of add one follow-up. I don't know if I told you this before, Jeff, but I actually did adjunct teaching one term um, at a local university here. So oh. I did anatomy. And one thing that I, to add on to that, I, I will, I totally agree with that, but I want to add in one thing that I was always struggling with. And I'm, I, I kind of love to know your thoughts on this too, is going into it. You kind of are like, gosh, how, how do I take all that I have in there and get it all into there? And then you have to realize what's the most important thing that they need at that time? And, you know, just how to figure out that starting line. And I don't know if, is that something that you found as well? Oh yeah. So no, that, that also, you know, you're right. So it's like the first part is what do you know? And the second part is how much can the students absorb and can you meet them where they're at? So if a student is starting really low, well then it doesn't matter if you have a really, you know, high level skill that you think they should know, they, they are not ready to absorb it. And so, so you have to create, you know, it's a ladder, like learning is a ladder. It's always a ladder. Some people can jump to the top of the ladder. Some people have to take every single rung at a time. So, so as an educator, you know, knowledge doesn't guarantee effectiveness, but knowledge is required for effectiveness. So effectiveness is being able to break it down in increments that students can absorb and, you know, kind of, you know, progress and get affirmed so that they also have self-efficacy in their own development, right? Yeah, and it was hard because having to teach anatomy, as I know, not the most fun subject for some of the students to learn all the time. But one thing that I at least noticed is that we'd have to go through the basic anatomy, but then also try to apply it in some way, shape, or form to a situation. So yeah. that students can understand this is why this is important. This is why this little detail is relevant. Like, so, and I found at least very, and I'm not an anatomy, I'm not a very experienced anatomy educator. I've only done one term, but I did find that that definitely did make a difference. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, students have to be motivated. So the why is the motivation, right? Well, Jeff, I've got to ask you kind of our final finale here, or kind of our big question, if you will, that we asked to every single guest at the end. Uh, and feel free if you want to say something that you've said beforehand to further reiterate it, or you want to choose something totally different that we haven't talked about tonight. Totally fine. So this is kind of, there's no limits here. So the question is, if you could change one aspect of healthcare education, 
whether that be physical therapy or other healthcare provider related, which aspect would you change and how would you change it? Well, this is, may sound interesting, but um, I'm, I'm an answer like this. So, uh, you know, one of the challenges of implementing the biopsychosocial model has been that, uh, you know, therapists have a real, and, and in primary care, therapists have a real hard time prioritizing different elements of um, a patient's problems. So like a patient like might have 13 comorbidities as an example. And so therapists have very difficult time like talking to the physician and agreeing on which one would be the primary one. And so I asked a, uh, I asked a medical student, I said, you know, cause they have, they have a, they have the same problem, only more intense. Right. I says, I says, well, how do you know, how do you figure that out? Like, how do you figure out of all these different things happening, you know, different lab problem, lab problems, physiology issues, diagnoses, how do you cut to the chase and decide which one is the one that's going to help this person? And, you know, essentially they, the, 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 this is a fourth year resident or something, you know? So he looks at me and he says, it's really hard to kill somebody. And I thought that is a really odd response. Right. And I'm like, I'm like, what is, so I, it really threw me back. Right. I thought this is from a medical student. And then he said, you know, he says, and then basically he said, you're going to make mistakes. And the most important thing is, is that you start to understand that people can tolerate a lot of different kinds of issues, especially when they're really complicated. And so being honest with patients and upfront and how you're trying to work with them and stop worrying so much about being perfect, right? And that's going to lead you to innovation and different ways of treating patients that are really different. And so I think that was really interesting for me. And so you know, my take on PT education was we need, we just need a, we need much more time in front of patients that are really complex, potentially working with or in primary care or that kind of residency model. And I would favor that because I think, you know, when you're outside of that model, you can pretend all you want that you can be perfect. But essentially the, the current focus of the education is way too much on, you know, the perfect home exercise program the perfect set of rehab issues rather than activating patients, just activating them because essentially the, the cures are within them. They're not necessarily, they don't necessarily need us to give them the cures. We just need to turn their ability to cure themselves on and get them activated. And so whether or not they do their home exercise program isn't the most important thing. It may be that they walk, interact with their families, you know, are, you know, doing chores at the house that may be as or more effective as some of the, you know, kind of minutia things that we want to do with them, you know, for the sake of a perfect exercise or, you know, home program kind of thing. No, that's a really good answer. And just to kind of add in another complex variable to that, knowing how if we think perfect, it's going to be so subjective based on every single person. So, and I can see why, of course, we have that variability in practice thing and therefore that's part of it. But I, I think that's a really good point is that, you know, not always having to be perfect, but doing what's kind of really beneficial for this person given everything. And that, you know what, it's kind of an assessment in motion. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, that's good. Because I don't think that's what I've heard on this show quite yet. So I love it when we get different answers. Now we're, now we're not getting the same, the same three ones anymore. So now it's good. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for your time this evening, your insight and for all that you do. And, you know, I appreciate you sharing your insight. Um, I recognize that some people listening might have some follow-up questions or maybe want to learn more about your guys' program. Where can people 
learn more about this or kind of reach out to you should they have a question on things? Well, so first, you can always go to George Fox University webpage, and Dr. Cuddyford, myself, and the other faculty are there, and you can see our, you know, contact us for email, which I'll just stay here, but you can also just go to the page. It's, it's jhouk, H-O-U-C-K, at georgefox.edu, and, uh, and, you know, we have uh, a lot, you know, we're always happy to discuss the biopsychosocial model cognitive functional therapy or anything about the university and the programs we have there. Well, perfect, Jeff. Well, again, thanks so much for your time, insight, and for coming on this evening. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, uh, Brandon. I really appreciate what you're doing here at the podcast and all your enthusiasm for changing uh, physical therapy. Well, and that's something that's good. I appreciate that because it's just finding a lot of people that are like that and just moving forward together. Awesome. Access to healthcare is one of the largest issues facing both providers and patients, as millions of people worldwide lack timely and affordable access to healthcare. Anywhere Healthcare, a telehealth platform, is a simple, low-cost option for providers and patients that eliminates the barriers to access to all kinds of healthcare. To find out more, check out anywhere.healthcare, which is available on our show notes. And if you use the code HET in all caps when you email to sign up, you'll save 25% off the total cost. Thank you for attending class today, and we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast, on Instagram, HET Podcast, on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and the homepage, healthcareeducationtransformationpodcast.com. And for those of you following along in the syllabus, extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.